Welcome to the first episode of season two of African Women Rock podcast. And in the season, we are focusing on women who are working in the community, in institutions, in government, in civil society, who are working towards deepening democracy, um, enhancing our human rights throughout the continent. And so we'll be speaking to women from all over the continent and finding out what they're doing, how the country is doing in terms of um, human rights, democracy, justice, freedom, fairness, and all of those kind of things. So today, my first guest in this first season, is, second season, is Linda Kasonde. Linda Kasonde is a human rights and democracy defender from Zambia. She's a lawyer by profession. I've personally known Linda for almost 10 years now. And Gosh. we have a lot in common because I grew up in Swaziland. She went to school. She did a high schooling in Swaziland. And um, she is someone I have deep, immense respect for. She's someone I feel has a lot of integrity. If there was ever a female to run for president of any African country, I would vote for Linda. I, Whenever I describe her to people, I say she is the equivalent of a Tulima Donsela of Zambia. She is like the conscience of um, Zambian society. She has been vilified by government and um, hated by those who want to maintain patriarchal structures there. So we're going to have a, a conversation with Linda. And also she's writing a book. And I'm excited about the book, Linda, because Thanks. I feel it's going to be a blueprint for many leaders throughout the continent. Um and I'm hoping that this uh, uh, season, you know, with us having conversations with women from all over the continent will help, you know, the listener to get a picture of what's going on in the continent. And um, I've traveled Africa and I've studied Africa, but I still know so little about it. So I'm looking forward to diving into Zambia. Um, Linda will share more, but Zambia is a, is a country of 19 million people compared to South Africa's 65 million. And it has a GDP of about $19 billion compared to South Africa's $400 billion. But it is a huge country physically, and it is a very rich country um, in terms of raw materials. It's got a lot of um, mining capacity capability from your coppers to all the kind of minerals that the world is fighting over for technology. And it has really, really amazing people. I remember my first experience of Zambia was one Zambia, one nation. Mm. So yeah, let's start there. Linda, what was that about? Um, this was me growing up in the 80s and my parents, um, you know, favored Zambia and looked up to Zambia as a model democracy. And that was a slogan, one nation, one Zambia. Mm -hmm. Is Zambia one nation, you know, and is it a model democracy at this time? Well, firstly, thank you. It's an absolute honor to be here um, with you in particular. Um, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, so... One Zambia, One Nation, the slogan arose in the First Republic of Zambia uh, under our first president, uh, Kenneth Kaunda. And his aim uh, following independence was to unite the country, which is made up of 72 different tribes. So um, English is the official language. There are no other official languages, although um, there are seven main uh, languages 
and then the other the other ones as well. Um, so the idea was to put nation above um, tribe or any other kind of um, identity. So I think he was very successful in doing that. Um, Zambia is one of the countries in the continent which, in spite of uh, the many different tribes we have, um, there's a lot of intermarriage. Um, and, and I guess we are a united country, but I have to say that that narrative came under threat over the previous 10 years uh, when we lived under the patriotic front rule. Um, divide and rule tactics were employed to sow seeds of division between people from different regions of the country and make some people feel less worthy than others. Um, of course, these are things we still grapple with here and there. Um, but overall, I think um, we're far less divided than we were being uh, led to be under the previous regime. That is a pity and very sad to hear from a post-democracy or liberation, let me say a post-liberation mm. um, um, government. And the, the past 10 years is also the time where you've also basically taken up the stand to, de to defend the idea of the fathers of democracy in Zambia, right? Mm. Yeah, that's right. So um, over the previous 10 years, um, there was what we call creeping authoritarianism in the sense that the government was becoming increasingly repressive and um, dictatorial in nature, um, trying to enhance and cement its power in, uh, in government. Um, there was a lot of corruption, uh, which became endemic, not only in the government, but also in the society which was becoming more corrupt. So we really were not in a great space. And um, it took the effort of many ordinary citizens uh, in civil society, in the church, um, and also in the opposition to try and push back on the shrinking civic space in the country. And I think uh, Zambia is certainly a success story in that regard, um, following the result of the 2021 general elections in which that previous government was voted out of office by a landslide. There are a million votes. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. As a South African, I, I envy you guys mm -hmm. the idea that you guys have had um, a change of political party governance, mm -hmm. like leaders in government, whereas in South Africa, we've had, what, we're almost 30 years into democracy and we've only had one political party running for government. Mm -hmm. And I envy that idea that you guys have. How many times has if you are you able to recall how many times you've changed? Well, I think we've, we've we currently we've had seven presidents since independence, and I here I must give um, credit to our first president, uh, Kenneth Kaunda. Um, in 1991, or actually in the late 1980s, moving into the early 1990s, there was a movement to restore multi-party democracy in the country. We had earlier been. Uh, one-party state ruled by one party, the UNIP, uh, which was the independence party. And, um, you know, the the president, Kaunda, he agreed to hold elections to change the, the, the country back into multi-party democracy. And he lost quite resoundingly in that election. And all credit to him, he stepped down. And that has really set up our country for the changes that have been made in the political sphere 
um, since that time because there's the weight of history behind those who try and resist stepping down. Um, and, and that is really what has saved our democracy. Yeah. Mm. And, okay, I didn't even know this about Zambia. What, what kind of a political system do, does Zambia have? It's a mixed presidential and parliamentary system. What does that mean? Because um, I, I, you know, let's say a layman or a person who, in South Africa, for example, we have, I think the same kind of thing, but we vote for one. When we vote, when we go for elections, we vote for a party mm. and that party votes for the president. Mm. So um, in a sense, we do know who we're gonna, who's going to be president because it's the president of the party. But as the people, you don't have a direct say mm. um, who the party chooses as the leader. Mm. So we choose, we go into election, we choose, we can only vote on the for the party mm-hmm. and even for parliament, we vote for a party and then the party decides um, who it's sending to parliament to represent us. Mm-hmm. And I've really come to feel, no, I absolutely am certain that it's not democratic enough. Mm-hmm. How does it work in Zambia? Well, all our uh, elected officials are elected directly, including the president. Um, so the president has his own ballot the presidential candidates have their own ballot and the members of parliament also have their own ballots and so does the mayor. So those are all directly elected by the people of Zambia. Meaning that the name of the people, so when when you guys go to vote, mm-hmm. you vote for the name of the person. Correct, yes. So let's say when you're voting for parliament, what happens there? You you tick one, one name yeah. or is it, are you supposed to tick 10 names or? No, well, um, you, you vote for your member of parliament. So, uh, in, in the, so your polling station will be in a particular area. So, for example, um, I'm under the Lusaka Central constituency, so I'll vote for the MP of my area um, in, in the election. So yeah. your, your, your poll will have, um, let's say, five different candidates. Then from, that constituency. from that constituency. Mm-hmm. You see, that's what we need in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you for clarifying that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know that the past 10 years has been quite tough um, for Zambia and for you in particular, someone who's really passionate about about democracy. Why do you still believe in democracy? And if so, why 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 do you believe in democracy so much? Mm, absolutely, I one hundred percent believe in democracy. Um, as Winston Churchill once said, um, democracy is the worst form of government except all others. Meaning that democracy, although it's not perfect, is the best system that we have. And actually, the Afrobarometer. Um, the latest statistics show that 67% of all Africans prefer democracy over any other form of government. Um, The difficulty is that there's a deficit between the demand for democracy and the delivery of democracy. So um, when you look at the statistics of whether people are satisfied with the democracy they're getting across the continent, um, those numbers drop significantly to about 50%. Um, because um, there's discontent with um, a lot of people feel that also, for example, the Pew Research Center had some statistics, um, which they in their their most recent report, which I think was 2018, 2019, somewhere there. And um, the statistics are that about 24 out of 27 uh, countries globally um, 
are discontented with, um, so if they feel that you can't progress economically in your country, then they feel that um, they're unhappy with democracy, how democracy is working. Or if, you, if um, also they're discontent with um, the fact that people don't have enough individual rights and freedoms, um, the vast majority of um, respondents in the Pew Research Study uh, said that um, they would be dissatisfied with democracy if there's no freedom of expression or if they don't feel they have freedom of expression. And then also um, the vast majority of um, respondents in the Pew Research sent, um, findings found that um, the vast majority of people, and I think it's almost all the countries that were surveyed, um, found that if the courts were not defending the rights of citizens, then they also were discontent with democracy. And lastly, very relevant in our part of the world is the fact that um, people are dissatisfied with how politicians conduct themselves. Um, they feel that people don't care, that the politicians don't care about the ordinary citizens and that there's a lot of corruption. Um, so those are the reasons why people feel that there's a deficit between what is the promise of democracy and what they actually get. I am I'm surprised that this it's 50% who are satisfied with the delivery of, of democracy, um, I'm increasingly feeling very disempowered mm. as a citizen of South Africa. If, and the Afrobarometer statistics actually for South Africa, um, satisfaction with how the government is working now is around 27%. So you're right. I mean, the South Africans are very dissatisfied. So the, the, the statistics I'm quoting are an average mm. for the whole, all the 54 countries in the continent. Yeah. So, for example, Zambia is at the top end in terms of at 90% of people who are satisfied with how democracy is working. And South Africa has really, really dropped significantly over the years. Yeah. Mm. No, I, I would definitely feel even, even 20%, 27% is a lot. But anyway, so in relation to that, um, how do you feel? Um, so you're saying 97% or 90% of Zambians are quite um, satisfied with the delivery of democracy. How do you feel um, as someone who's like a practitioner and always engaging with people in that space? How would you rate the quality or, yeah, the quality or the delivery of democracy in Zambia? Well, the one thing that's very significant in our jurisdiction is that our vote really does count. We can see that... Um, people can actually affect change through the ballot box. And we've done it successively since the return of multi-party democracy in 1991. And that's not something to be taken for granted because we look around, we have, I think it's uh, eight neighbors and most of them are still stuck with their independence parties, even though people are not satisfied with how those parties are delivering. So we've managed to change successive uh, parties and remove them from government when we don't feel that they're working. What needs to be worked on in our democracy is how people participate in between elections, because often, uh, you know, culturally, we're not a very confrontational people. Um, and um, so it tends to be a very small minority of people speaking out against whether it's corruption or breaches of the human rights and the rule of law. And uh, that came at a very high cost for those of us who were involved in calling out the government's excesses, particularly under the previous uh, uh, regime. So um, 
I think that um, civil society has been very strong in Zambia as well. Um, um, uh, calling out, um, you know, the government's uh, excesses and educating the people on their rights and um, how to take action against what's going wrong in the country. And that's been a pattern for the past sort of 30 years. Um, we've had a very vibrant civil society working together with the church um, and also sometimes opposition political parties. Yeah, mm. and I think that's an uh, um, an aspect we're currently missing in South Africa. We no longer have a vibrant civil society. We used to have one prior to democracy, but mm. since the liberation, um, we don't have um, civil society that is very active in relation to the safeguarding and deepening of democracy and human rights. Mm. I'm also starting to feel like, you know, a lot of the times I think a country like Botswana is hailed as a model democracy. Yeah, but I'm starting to feel like Zambia has not been highlighted enough um, mm. just from what, we, what we're discussing now. So you studied law. Um, were you someone who was always passionate about going into the space that you found yourself in? Um, is that why you went into law? Actually, I often say that I was an accidental lawyer um, because when I finished my <clears throat> international baccalaureate, which is sixth form, um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So my favorite subjects were English and history. Um, my dad always thought I'd become a journalist. Um, my mom was the more cautious person. My dad was like, oh, you can do whatever you want. My mom was like, no, um, you girls talking to me and my sister, you need to pursue a profession because whatever happens to you, you will always be that thing. You'll always have that thing to fall back on. So maybe subconsciously, um, because of the the topics I was, uh, the subjects I was interested in at school, I decided to apply for a law degree. Um, and I first, um, when I finished my sixth form, I actually went to um, the University of Zambia straight out of um, finishing my international baccalaureate uh, in Swaziland. And... Um, I think my, my parents' view was that uh, it's always better to do professional degrees in your own country because you'll have that network of people in your professional life, which is very good, a very good idea. And um, um, unfortunately, it didn't quite work out because I was there for all of three weeks and there was a major strike, a student strike um, during that time and the university was shut for a whole year. So um, the people that I was in class with are now um, a year behind me um, as a result of that um, strike. So because I went on to do my degree at the University of Leicester in England and uh, completed my degree in three years, whereas they were doing um, uh, they had to stay an extra year. Um, but that came with challenges because uh, I, I didn't when I came back. I didn't have uh, that network of people. Um, when I graduated, which was around July 2000, I literally got off the plane and into class uh, at the bar school. And uh, at the time, the classes were quite small. I think we were a class of about 40. Um, but I slowly inched my way into the profession and um, got to know people and got very interested in 
the work of the Law Association of Zambia, which is the National Bar Association. And there I um, volunteered on various committees, um, eventually becoming convener of committees. And then eventually I decided to stand uh, for a position on the council, which is the governing body of the Law Association of Zambia. And um, at the time I decided to stand, um, I didn't really have a lot of confidence in myself as somebody who was electable, if you like. And I always remember, I will go back to a conversation I had with um, a classmate of mine, Kweku, uh, at um, Waterford, which is the school I went to in Swaziland. It was uh, my first year of the International Baccalaureate. And traditionally, the Student Representative Council, the SRC, was headed by the IB1 uh, students. And, you know, so they, the elections were coming around and he said to me, um, you know, are you going to stand for any position? And I said to him, oh, you know, I really don't think so. I don't think anyone's going to vote for me. And he looked at me and he said, that's a really lousy attitude. And at the time I was like, what is he talking about? I'm not, I'm not popular. How are people going to vote for me? But that conversation stuck with me um, for a good, I'd say, 10 years or so, um, to the point at which I decided to stand for council uh, of the Law Association of Zambia. And in that election, uh, of the ordinary council positions, because there's an executive and then there's ordinary council positions, I had the third most number of votes for ordinary council member. And I remember thinking, wow, this thing works. You just need to put yourself out there. Um, and that is something that um, propelled me to take up more and more positions on the council and sort of climb the ladder progressively. And I think probably um, the landmark um, position for me, which, which really taught me that you've just got to believe in yourself, was when I stood for the position of Honorary Secretary of the Law Association. Um, I was up against somebody who was my senior by a good five or so years, um, possibly more. And he was very well known in the profession. And um, I asked a friend of mine who's um, eight years older than me. I, I once worked for her and she was, she was very well known in the, prof in the profession. And I said, you know, can you just ask your friends what they think of me standing? You know, because I didn't really want to put myself out there and, and fail. Right. Um, so she went away, asked her friends, about 10 of them. And she came back to me and said, look, I've talked to 10 people and they really don't know who you are. And I was like, oh, ready to throw in the towel. And then another friend of mine, uh, Augustine Hamwella, uh, gave me a book, um, which isn't a great literary book. It's called Dare to Fail, but it had a really great lesson in there for me. Um, it, um, there's a story about a young ballerina who um, is very ambitious. She wants to become a prima ballerina. And so she hears that a famous ballet master is coming to town. She says, you know, I'm going to go dance for this guy. So um, after the performance, she went behind stage and she said to the guy, the ballet master, you know, can I dance for you? And um, he said, sure. So she danced her heart out. And at the end of the performance, she said, you know, how did I do? And he said to her, nope, 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 you don't have what it takes. 
And she went away really crushed because, you know, that had been her dream, her aspiration of becoming a prima, prima ballerina. And she'd been told she didn't have what it takes. Um, so she gave up her career of being a ballerina. She got married, had kids. Um, but years later, she heard that the same ballet master was coming back to town. So um, she decided she was going to see him. And so she did. Once the performance was over, she says to him, you know, um, I performed for you a few years ago. Um, I really wanted to find out what was it about me that you thought I didn't have what it takes. And he said to her, that was my standard response to all ballerinas. And she says, incredulous, just like you've ruined my career. And he said, no, if you had what it takes, you wouldn't have listened to what I had, what I said. So spurred on by that book and the lesson in that book, I decided to put myself out there. I campaigned really hard. Um, You know, my my colleague, my my rival was buying drinks for people, schmoozing. Uh, I campaigned on an issue-based campaign. I put my flyers out there. I made phone calls. And when the results came in, I had beat my opponent by two to one votes. And that for me was... Then I just knew that half the battle is just putting yourself out there. Uh-huh. Yeah. You became, that's when you were running for president of less. That was when I became honorary secretary. Okay. The presidency was much harder. Yeah. 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 I think I, we had already met by the time you were running for. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was the issue you ran on, by the way? Um, there were several issues. Um <laughs> But essentially, uh, I saw myself as somebody who got the job done. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I had actual achievements to my name over that period. Over the, by that time, by the time I stood for president, I think I'd been working in the Law Association for about 10 years. So of the candidates that stood for president, I had been the most experienced because I climbed from being an ordinary council member to the honorary secretary. I then stood for vice president and then finally stood for the presidency. And um, so I was the most experienced candidate, but also that was sort of counting against me because some people thought that I had been the de facto president as vice president. And they were like, oh, she wants a third term. Um, And then also, I think, as you alluded to earlier, there was a lot of patriarchy. Um, For example, some of the feedback that I got from uh, the people who are campaigning for me uh, they said, oh, you know, Linda's too ambitious. She's already a partner and a named partner in the firm she's in. Why does she also want to be president? Um, my favorite was, uh, doesn't Linda read the Bible? Um, oh. <laughs> doesn't she know men are supposed to be in charge? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, and it was so, so funny as we were campaigning. Like um, I had my track record. And I was selling myself on what I'd actually done. Mm. And I mean, in all fairness, the other two candidates didn't, didn't have quite the same record. Mm. And um, it was still like, what more have you done? But, but I don't think the same questions well, were being asked of my colleagues. Yeah. It was a really, really tough battle. And for me, um, because I was the first woman to be elected, um, or I was the first woman, um, yeah, I, to be elected as a uh, president, or that was my ambition in any, in any, at any rate, I decided that I had to do something that no one had ever done before. Mm. So not only did I campaign in the profession, but I also sort of 
got myself familiar with the public because the Bar Association is also a, it has a national role. It's not just about regulating the profession. It's, we have a mandate to, um, to also uphold the rule of law, constitutionalism, um, and, 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 you know, human rights essentially, uh, in the country. And that's often a role that was forgotten. And certainly one of the things that, um, people said about me was that I was too political. I didn't focus enough on the profession. Um, but, um, we campaigned really hard and, um, you know, I got in and it was, yeah, it was, you made history. I made history yeah. indeed. Yeah. You really made history as the first named part partner of a law firm. Yeah. Not quite. So, um, I wasn't the first female named partner of a law firm, but I was the first to be promoted to a named partner from an existing established firm. Okay. Right. Because there yes. were women who Starting had their own yes. firms. But for I actually, I mean, I, I broke the ceiling in terms of an established male-led firm promoting a woman to name partnership. Yeah. Yeah. I think at the time, what fascinated me was the influence that Laz had. Because in the South African context, I, I don't even know if we have, I don't know what the equivalent of Laz is here. Law Society. The Law Society, yeah. Society of South Africa. and. I don't see it as prominently as Laz obviously is mm. um, because, you know, when we speak about constitutionalism, for example, I would have imagined that one of the projects that the Law Society of South Africa should have would be um, an extensive program of educating people about their human rights, about the constitution, what they can do there, mm. of course, um, such that most of us don't even know the recourses we have in terms of, uh, you know, I think I was asking you the other day, um, what can an ordinary South African do? How can I get to the constitutional court mm. to um, take a court where I'm challenging the electoral system, saying that it's not democratic enough, it's not constitutional? It's something I haven't investigated, but I'm just saying that it's something that most people don't know. And I, I really... Um, it, I admire that prominence that the lads have mm. or had anyway under your leadership. I don't know if they still do now. But, you know, it's, it's, it's still a very influential organization. People look to it for guidance on national legal issues. So very much still uh, a prominent organization. Yes. Yeah. It's a pity mm. it isn't the case here. So now what kind of law were you mainly practicing and where, where to now in terms, because I know you left that law firm, um, when you took on your full, you mm. became too political, right? Mm -hmm. to and yeah, we, what kind of legal, or are you more into constitutionalism, human rights? What were you at now? Mm. So I, I often say that I've just come back to basics because um, my first job was at a legal aid clinic, um, uh, which basically protected the rights of women and children who couldn't afford legal aid services. So we provided free legal services to women and children, uh, which was kind of a human rights role, although most of the work that we did for those women and children was to do with family law, sort of divorce, custody, property, inheritance, that sort of thing. Um, but um, the thing that really interested me about the law when I studied it in my first degree was uh, I was really, uh, there was a course called Civil Liberties, which caught my attention, which I did in my second year at university. 
And our lecturer uh, of that course was a guy called Peter Kumper, who was from Northern Ireland. And if you recall, during the time that we were growing up, Northern Ireland was full of troubles um, with yeah. the divisions between um, the, the Republicans and the, uh, the other parties. So um, he really ignited in me the passion for human rights, because that's what civil liberties is all about. And so... Um, uh even when I left the legal aid clinic to join um, the law firm that I eventually uh, went to and was there for 15 years, um, I still retained an interest in the rule of law, human rights and constitutionalism. And that's why I was so active in the Law Association of Zambia, because we did that kind of work. And thankfully, I had really good uh, partners allowed me to explore um, what I call extracurricular activities mm. um, outside of um, the, for, the firm. So I was very fortunate in that regard. Um, so now so, you run your own organization. Yeah, yeah. So I left after 15 years to start a uh, an NGO called Chapter One Foundation. And for me, Chapter One Foundation was... Um, was founded so to to address the shrinking civic space in Zambia. As I mentioned, the previous government was becoming increasingly repressive, and I had already um, had some of those battles while I was at um, the Law Association of Zambia. So I wanted to continue the work of pushing back against the shrinking civic space. So I founded the organization at the same time as a, a law firm called LCK Chambers, to um, do the legal work on behalf of the NGO around constitutionalism, the rule of law, and human rights. So we were defending human rights defenders who got um, charged with um, various um, standing up to the government for, for various things. You know, their the human rights were breached, etc., And we also took some strategic public interest litigation cases. For example, we... Uh, pushed back on the Constitutional Amendment Bill, which threatened to essentially entrench one-partyism again uh, in our country through through constitutional reform. Uh, so we, we took a case to court, which was not successful, but we took the campaign to the streets and the people were got on board and finally understood the issues. And that um, amendment, the, the, the Constitutional Amendment Bill, didn't pass in Parliament twice. Wow. Yeah, uh, wow. we ca we can't believe it ourselves. It wow. was literally we. This is God, you know, um, and how it works. But this is you. You said something earlier where you were like believe in yourself. I feel like uh, with you anyway. How I see you is that um, beyond believing in yourself, it's all it's about believing in the issue in the matter. Mm. So mm. the fact that it was something so big. I mean, it was a big, it was going to be a, if they had succeeded, it was mm -hmm. going to change um, the fabric of, of your society. Mm -hmm. And um, even though you lost in one aspect, you were able to rally people. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a huge victory. It's a huge, well done. I mean, um, now that I think about it and I look at it, I'm like, wow, mm -hmm. well Thanks. done. Well done. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a woman in the space, doing the things that you've, you've done, um, how have you found it? And, 
Um, is it a space where there are enough women? Should there be more women? Mm-hmm. Um, so in the space that I work in, which is civil society, um, there are lots of very powerful and prominent women who operate in that space. Um, um, but but how we are treated or dealt with by the governments in office differs from male folk, uh, male folk. Um, for example, um, you're more vulnerable to sort of smear campaigns and uh, security, physical security risks because you, you just never know where the threat can come from. Um, and uh, during the previous dispensation, um, there were what we call political party cadres, which, which were um, people, uh, supporters of the ruling party who were deployed to um harass harass people whether it was in the marketplace the bus stops um you know they they became a real menace to society um so we thankfully that's no longer such a terrible thing but there's still um, some still some around yeah mm-hmm. um and do you find that the courts in Zambia, like so let's say you're being harassed and all that. Mm. Do you find that the courts in Zambia are still independent and a defender of the people, of a defender of law, are to some extent compromised? So um ordinarily in a in a democracy, the courts should be the last line of defense to protect the rights and freedoms of citizens. Um, I'm sad to say that on many occasions uh, we were disappointed by the outcomes, the judgments of, of the courts when it really mattered. Um, but there's always some people who were brave and stood their ground um, when, you know, when it counted. For example, um, on polling day in August 2021, um, the government shut down the Internet in Zambia on polling day as people were in the queue. So um, thankfully we were ready at Chapter One Foundation because we'd anticipated that would happen. What year was this? 2021, the, yeah. the, national, yeah. the last national elections. And uh, so we were ready. Um, we drafted court proceedings for judicial review, filed them into court, and uh, we managed to obtain uh, a stay, which is a kind of injunctive relief, um, against um, the shutdown. So the internet was restored within a a day or two, um, which was huge because that was the first case of its kind in Zambia challenging an internet shutdown. Um, And we were successful. Um, And the judge who signed the order um, restoring the internet, at the time, the election results were not out yet. Um, the judge's name is Charles Zulu. So the, the, the results weren't out yet. So we didn't know which way the election was going to go. And clearly this attempt at shutting down the internet was to stop the movement of information about the election results. So um, for this judge to have signed that order, um, stopping the internet shutdown was really brave of him. Um, so there are... it could have been the same government won. Right? Yes, exactly. So his livelihood, his life could have just been... Exactly. Yeah. So there are some brave judges out there and we commend them 
um yeah that judge in particular Charles Sulu was very brave yeah I don't know where this habit but it's growing throughout African countries this habit of governments shutting down the internet mm. um to um shut down dissent or you know to control to try and control the narrative it's crazy mm. Mm. so you've moved from you know being a a, a lawyer um you've been basically a owner of a part of a partner in a very big law firm which is quite a glamorous job. You could have stayed there, <laughs> earning earning very well, living a cushiony life. Mm. Um, then you've gone into um, full time into LAS presidency, where you are in the battlefield with government mm. almost on a daily basis. Where your mm. reputation was—I mean, I know you're healthy. You had you suffered quite a lot of strain and stress and mm. feeling unsafe a lot of the time, mm. and now you went into um, starting your own organization, which flourished very quickly, mm. becoming quite the fierce defender and voice of the people. Mm. Um, where to now for Linda Kasande? Because he's still here and you've still got, there's still much I'm sure you can do. You know, um, when I was vice president of LAS, um, I was invited to attend a, um, it was the, the University of Zambia Law School graduates dinner. And I was invited to that occasion and um, I bumped into a young lady um, in the bathroom when we were chatting. I said, oh, you know, what are you going to do now? And she said, oh, I'm really, really, I'm really not sure. And I said to her, oh, I'm, I'm also not sure what I want to be when I grow up. Just joking with her. <laughs> and uh, she said to me, um, you're done. You're the vice president. What, you know, essentially, what more would you want? Mm. And uh, it struck me at that point that um, uh, because she'd never seen a, a president, female president, female president yeah. that was her ceiling for all other women. Yeah. And I think um, that conversation really um, struck me in the sense that Mm, a lot of people put limitations on, on themselves and what they want to achieve. Mm. So um, through my experiences, I'm not putting any limits on myself. Yeah. The sky is the limit. Right. Mm-hmm. Hey, you could become the first female president of Zambia. Who knows? I doubt <laughs> it. <laughs> um, and so in terms of Zambia, um, the democracy, Africa, the democracy, mm. what, what is your dream for Zambia and for the rest of the continent? I've actually said this on a previous occasion. My dream for Zambia is that we never forget that we, the citizens, ultimately have the power. Um, I think we've exercised that power in Zambia, not just uh, at the ballot box, um, but also in between elections. For example, um, in the 1990s, um, the president who was elected after Kenneth Kaunda, Frederick Chiruba, at the end of his second term, uh, began to make moves to stand for a third term in office. You know, um, so he sent out feelers, you know, how are the people going to respond to this move? And um, civil society, the church, the trade unions and the opposition got together and they fought that move, uh, pushing back against the move to amend the constitution to provide for a third term. Um, that's not the only time. Like, again, I mentioned the, the advocacy we did around the Constitution Amendment Bill to push back on that. Um, um, we've also um, resisted sort of states of emergency. Um, 
and, and various other things that, that have threatened our democracy over the years. Um, because as I said earlier, civil society has been very vibrant and stands up when the situation demands. Yeah. So um, my hope for Zambia is that we never forget that we have that power, mm-hmm. um, not just at the ballot box, but also in between elections. Yeah. yeah. And my dream for Africa is that one day, and one day soon, hopefully, will no longer be considered the poor child of the world and that we will have an equal seat at the table um, where important discussions are being had, which include issues that affect us. Yeah. Um, So that's really um, my hope um, for the continent. I think for me, though, uh, we have to move as a continent and the different countries we need to move into seeing politics and economics as one thing mm. because uh, you said something earlier is that that people in terms of measuring democracy they measure it according to their ability to succeed and move around mm. in the economy right mm. but we tend to uh, separate politics mm. and the economics and mm. yet they actually very much infused absolutely. And I feel like in South Africa, I feel like the big corporates are actually more powerful mm. than government in terms of enabling whether people have the ability to make a life or not. They have the ability to decide whether to transform the economy or not. And I think we need to start moving into that space where that conversation is one thing. Mm. It will change, mm. I think, the face of Africa faster because mm. people will then start having having a say do we want Zambian minerals mm. to leave Zambia um, and, and unrefined as they've been doing in the past? Mm. How much of Zambian money do we want to stay here? Mm. How much, you know, where do we, how do we want to see the, the, the investment work? Mm. Um, and I think that's where we need to move to as a, as a continent. Mm. And, and that, because that's where also the corruption happens, right? Mm. And the people are blind and not participating in, in those conversations. Mm. And, you know, just to bring you, Towards closing, I mean, we could talk forever. Uh, there's so much I, I feel I, I want to learn from you. But this podcast is about African women rock. And mm. now this particular season is about um, women in that space. So how is gender representation in politics uh, in Zambia? Mm. Uh, good question. It's actually regressed. Um, in the new government. So um, one of the cases Chapter One Foundation took up um, just towards the end of the the, the last um, the Patriotic Front regime, uh, we had observed that um, although we have a constitutional provision that um, uh, requires the president when making presidential appointments um, to consider gender equity and inclusion of youth and disabled persons, um, those provisions were not being implemented. So we looked at the statistics, we presented them to the court, uh, we made our arguments uh, in line with the constitutional provisions and said, look, this is unconstitutional and it needs to stop. Um, and we actually lost the case. Um, And then uh, when the new government came into uh, office, we observed the situation. We noted that the presidential appointments that were being made were also had far fewer women than previously. 
um, you know, the, 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 we had regressed in terms of gender representation. So then we decided, no, we can't just stop at having lost in the constitutional court. And we decided to elevate um, that matter to the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. So if successful, that will be the biggest gender equality case, um, not just in Zambia, but for the, um, well, I don't know about the continent, but certainly the impact it will have on um, people um, putting into effect uh, gender uh, equity and equality provisions that they've signed up to under uh, the African Charter, um, which several, if not most um, African countries have signed up to. Um, uh, will be affected and impacted in in um, a lot of countries. So we, unfortunately, can take up to six years to get a result from the African Commission, but we're very hopeful. Why six years? They just have a huge backlog, and um, the commissioners are not permanent. Um, they have other jobs, so it's, it's not a permanent. It's not a full time role. Well, first of all, congratulations for taking this up. I didn't, I mean, you haven't, you haven't updated me as a friend about this. I didn't know that's a big deal. And yeah. good for you. Good Thank you. For, for, for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally have always viewed the, the AU as toothless. Um, I feel like it's a boys club that doesn't have the will. Um, and, I've, and I'm certainly speaking from someone who engaged with this institution like decades ago mm-hmm. when I was still in government. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping that things have changed and it's not just about ticking boxes and mm-hmm. it's about actually wanting to see actual change for, for people. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel that, um, especially in politics, because that's where we see a lot of it up in South Africa, you've got quite a high representation of women in in parliament and cabinet. I personally don't see the difference. Mm-hmm. I don't see... Um, the difference that I felt or feel and think that women should be able to bring. Mm. Um, and I think that's just because of the nature of our politics. We mm. women are, uh, the women in politics have to always be at the mercy of the, the male mm. leaders. So mm. they, you never get to really very few mm. of our politicians. Do you really get to see their mind mm-hmm. and how they think, what they feel and what they would really do? You hardly see that. They're mm. always towing the line and, supporting the male, which is very regressive. Mm. Do you feel that in Zambia or any other country that you've seen that, I think we've had a conversation about Rwanda, for example, Mm. do you feel that um, having the number of women does make a difference? Mm. Well, I'll I'll start off by saying that representation definitely matters, and I'll get back to that in a minute. But I think the reason why um, we uh, in some countries where there are a lot of women in parliament, well, why perhaps we're not seeing uh, the, the, the change that we want to see um, as a result of that representation is in politics in many of our African countries, it's still the men who are the gatekeepers of uh, power uh, and real influence. And, um, you know, often women are relegated to sort of softer ministries and things like that. Um, if if they're even included in in in, in cabinet at all, um, but one of my favorite stories about why representation matters um, was um, a story I heard on a BBC program uh, a few years back. I was listening to the Swedish foreign minister narrate a story 
about two warring factions fighting over a river on a map. And at the time, there were just men in the room fighting over this map. But when they decided to introduce women to the conversation, the woman pointed out that, in fact, that river had dried up many years ago um, because they used to use the river, right? So essentially, they were fighting over nothing. And for me, that's always a great illustration of how representation can matter. Yeah. Uh, if women can are given the voice yes. uh, and, and the influence that they need to be able to represent uh, other women. Mm-hmm. Mm. But it has to be real power, right? It real has power. to be um, a woman standing up on her own volition because mm. she cares about a matter and her having the space to define herself mm. and not because she wants power for the sake of power mm. because she is something that she really is. Mm. Well, Linda, thank you so much. Like, um, because of time, we have to like cut this short, but there's a lot um, that we could cover. Uh, you've written a book mm-hmm. um, that's coming out sometime this year. Mm-hmm. What is the book about and why should people, especially people outside of Zambia, read this book? Mm-hmm. My book is a memoir, um, which kind of um, narrates my experiences as a woman in leadership in Zambia, pushing back on um, creeping authoritarianism in my country. Um, It talks about um, why representation matters, um, but critically, why we need more women in leadership. Um, because I personally feel that once we get a critical mass, and this is not a view, a, a view unique to me, I've heard um, the former Australian Prime Minister, um, um, <laughs> also talk about this, that once we have a critical mass of women in leadership, we'll no longer be um, looking at what they're wearing or, you know, how their, you know, how their hair is done, how they speak, but rather the content, um, because those things will become less relevant. Um, but really the book is a call to arms for women to stand up and be counted, um, because we really need their voices out there. And it does make a difference. Um, my story is weaved between, um, uh, from the time I grew I was growing up, uh, into my time in the national, um, if you like, political arena under LAS, the Law Association of Zambia. And um, it's also historical in terms of documenting what happened. And and I end with some lessons um, that I, I personally learned, which people are free to take or not, uh, on my leadership journey. And the things that I think would be useful to other women trying to embark on the journey. Yeah. So, I mean, I was privileged enough to read um, one of your earlier versions, and I definitely think it's something, it's a book that everyone should read, especially women and men who care about creating a more fair and just society. Mm. Uh, Thank you so much, Linda, for um, coming onto the podcast and sharing your views and letting us into uh, how things are in Zambia and the wonderful work that you're doing and what you stand for and giving us courage in our different spaces to stand up and to, if not stand up for ourselves, to stand up for those that are not able to stand up for themselves. Mm. 
My name is Ndombentle Katwane. This is African Women Rock, uh, season two, and we are all about conversations about women in leadership working to deepen democracy and to make rule of law, democracy, equality, justice, fairness, the name of the game throughout Africa. Look forward to listen to our podcast and give us feedback and maybe suggest other people and women that you would like us to feature on the show. We would love to speak to women from all over the continent. Thank you.